It is fitting on this All Saints Sunday uh, that as we continue in our preaching series on the Apostles' Creed, that we come to the phrase where Christians profess to believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. Today, we're going to ask the question, what does it mean to believe in the church? Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? This comes from Hebrews chapter 12, the whole chapter, verses 1 to 29. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that ye may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. By it, many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that after her, afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. But they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful. We're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for the preaching of God's word. Our God, we pause here not out of uh, habit, um, but out of reality that we need help. That we need the very one who authored these words, the Holy Spirit, to come now and to shine in our hearts, to lift our eyes to see Jesus for who he is. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand that we would see Jesus as more beautiful and as more believable. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. The question for today that I want us to work through is, do you have to believe in the church to be a Christian? Think about it. Do you have to believe in the church to be a Christian? I don't know, you may be surprised to even find, I believe in the church in the Apostles' Creed. Because the creed is understood to be comprised of the most central, the most vital, the most indispensable things that Christians have to believe. You know, there are many things that Christians can disagree upon, to name a few, the mode of baptism, the gifts of the Spirit, various social and political beliefs. But the creed, the creed is the heart, right? It's the heart of the heart of the faith, a consensus creed that binds us all together. It's full of the most important things that we believe, like the incarnation of Christ into our humanity, like the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and also the Holy Catholic Church. You can feel like it doesn't belong, right? It does to me. It feels like it doesn't fit with such weightier beliefs. And it's a challenge even more so in our day and age because there are many who profess or even practice a churchless Christianity. They may say, I believe in the Christ, but not the church. Give me Jesus, but not the church especially with all the current challenges surrounding association with evangelical Christianity. People may say, you know, it's about my personal relationship with Jesus. The church is fine if it aids in your personal relationship, but it is, it's not necessary. So again, I ask you, do you have to believe in the church to be a Christian? Well, my answer is no and yes. (laughs) No and yes. On the one hand, no. Because you should not believe in the church in the same way that you believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and in the Holy Spirit. Notice that the creed puts in before each member of the Trinity only. Because to believe in to something is to believe into. That is to place the whole weight of your hope in your trust, and your confidence. And that weight can only be held up by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In this sense, brothers and sisters, please do not believe in the church because that is a recipe for disappointment or even to lose your faith. Because in the creed, among the things in the creed, the church is both a work of God and man. And because we're involved, because sinful human beings are involved, the church cannot fully be what she was designed to be. Therefore, it cannot hold the weight of your hopes and your dreams. It cannot. Only God can. I saw a tweet this week from Diane Langberg. Diane Langberg is a Christian psychologist who works especially with trauma survivors, many from within church contexts. 
She wrote, I don't know if she wrote it for uh, All Saints Week, but it was perfectly fitting. Langberg writes, institutions, organizations, ministries, places, systems are not Jesus Christ. Nor is Christendom the same as the living body of Christ. I fear many of us can have confused Christendom or our little corner of it with Christ. They are not, nor have they ever been the same. This speaks to me. I don't know about you. If you've been struggling lately with the church, perhaps you put too much of your faith in the church and not in Christ. And so in one sense, no, we don't believe in the church in the same way that we believe in Jesus, right? The church is his body, but it is not him. And he is way better. He is the only sure foundation for our faith. But on the other hand, yes, we do believe in the church as a creation of God. Just like God created the heavens and the earth, he has also created the Holy Catholic Church. We believe the church is his idea, it's his invention. And therefore, he has a purpose for it that we are called to believe in. In fact, if you think about it, in the, in the, in the course of history, the, the idea of a churchless Christian is actually a, more, a rather modern idea or notion. Like, listen to how some of the saints of old spoke about the church. Cyprian in the third century said, No one can have God for his father who's not, who has not the church for his mother. Augustine in the 4th century said, We had two parents who gave birth to us for mortality. We have two who give birth to us for immortality, God and the church. John Calvin, 16th century, said, Beyond the pale of the church, no forgiveness of sins, no salvation can be hoped for. No salvation outside the church. That sounds so strange to our modern ears, doesn't it? But the theologians of the church throughout the ages have looked at the scriptures And what they have seen is that God's mission from the beginning is not just to save individual souls, but to build a new humanity, a community that's called the church. Therefore, to belong to Jesus is to belong to his church. And that is what we are called to believe in the Apostles' Creed. In other words, it is is we who have read our individualism into the Bible, rather than letting the Bible's communalism correct our individualism. In this sense, yes, we believe in the church. The Heidelberg Catechism summarizes in trying to understand why we confess this in the Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe that the Son of God, through his word and spirit, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community, chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, I am and always will be a living member. So friends, we don't believe in the church as the basis of our confidence for the Christian faith. Please don't. But we do believe about the church, what God says about the church. And what is it that we believe about the church? It's summarized here in our confession of the creed. First of all, we believe that she is holy. She is the holy Catholic church or the communion of saints. Now, this can be confusing because you might think, does this mean I have to have a special degree of moral purity or of religious piety or extra saintliness in order to be included in the Holy Catholic Church? Well, I, for one, hope not, because that would exclude me, and it might exclude you. 
I read a great quote this week from the reformer Martin Luther, who agrees with what I just said. He once wrote, May a merciful God preserve me from a Christian church in which everyone is a saint. (laughs) I love that. May he preserve me from a Christian church in which everyone is a saint. I want to be and remain in the church and little flock of the faint-hearted, the feeble and the ailing, who feel and recognize the wretchedness of their sins, who sigh and cry to God incessantly for comfort and help, who believe in the forgiveness of sins. Me too. That's the church I want to be a part of. And in fact, precisely because the gospel is good news, that status of holy actually has nothing to do with what you have done and everything to do with what God has done for you. My favorite example of this is the church in Corinth. In the Bible, it takes up two letters written to the church in Corinth, First and Second Corinthians. And the church in Corinth, I don't know if you, how much you know, but it is by far the most messed up church in the New Testament. It gives me hope. You read through the letters and you hear about all the things that are going wrong in this church. If I was pastor of this church, I would, I would have anxiety and never sleep. <laughs> they have bitter divisions about their favorite celebrity preachers. They have rampant sexual immorality. They have Christians bringing lawsuits against each other. They have abuse of spiritual gifts and Christian freedom. And overall, what tops it all off, an overall lack of love. And yet, and yet, how does Paul begin his letter to them, his first letter? to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, holy in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He calls them sanctified saints. That's amazing. And that means that being a saint must mean more than your recent record of righteousness or your moral performance. It must be. It must be a status that is bestowed upon you from the outside, not created from the inside of you. It it has to be a gift. And friends, that's precisely why the gospel is called good news. The church is called holy because Christ is holy. We are called holy because of his record of righteousness. His moral performance is credited to us by faith. And that way, everyone, every one of you, you're in this room and throughout the world, if you are in Christ, you are a saint, whether living or dead. Dear friends, to be holy simply means to be set apart for God. You belong to him. Just like one in seven days is set apart for God and therefore called a holy Sabbath. So out of all the people on earth, the church is set apart for God and therefore called a holy Catholic church. Now, you might be thinking, now, should we grow in actual experiential holiness? Of course. Of course. But we've got to understand how it works. Just like on my wedding day, I was given a new status immediately as married. One flesh with April. But I will spend the rest of my life growing into the actual experience of being one in marriage. So, friends, on your baptism day, you were given a new status as holy set apart for God, and yet you will spend the whole of your life growing into practice what you already are by position. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is the process of growing into what you already are in Christ. We've got to get the order right. The position comes first, and then the practice. Friends, that is what makes the Christian faith so unique, 
That's what gives me encouraged to say I believe in the church because it's so unique and special. I shared a few weeks ago about my love for the game of baseball because it's such a unique game. By the way, one of my teams won the World Series, so there you go. Way to go. How about those Atlanta Braves? Friends, I didn't get into it, but I love baseball because because how unique it is. It's, It's the only sport where the defense possesses the ball. It's the only sport where you are expected to fail most of the time as a hitter. The best players in the game fail three out of four times at the plate. And where there's no time clock, and therefore there is always hope. All the way till the 27th out. So friends, I say to you, the church is so special and unique. It's the only organization in the world, as I said earlier, where membership is based on your unworthiness. That exists ultimately for the benefit of its non-members. And where sinners are called saints. That's what it means. To believe in the church is to believe that if you are in Christ, no matter what your last week was, no matter what your last night was, you are a saint, holy, set apart as a people belonging to God. Secondly, what do we believe about the church? We believe that she is Catholic. Now, this may be the most confusing word in the creed. Usually there's a little asterisk in the bulletin that explains it. We don't do that. Maybe, I don't know, maybe we just want you to ask us a question uh, instead of just explaining it. I remember my stepfather asked me one time what Catholic meant in the creed. He had never confessed the creed, and he came to my churches, and we always did it. And he said, what does that mean? And I explained to him that it didn't mean the Roman Catholic Church, but the universal church in all times and in all places. And he replied, well, I'm still not going to say it. (laughs) It's like, touche, teach his own. But friends, no, Catholic does not mean the Roman Catholic Church. It literally means according to the whole or universal. It encompasses every true Christian everywhere. And it means despite all of our differences and all of our divisions, the church is one. There is only one church because there's only one Lord. We are a part of the whole and you might be saying, well, why do, we insist on, why do we insist on keeping that word then? Why not change it? Why not change it to the Holy Universal Church or the Holy Christian Church? You certainly could, but I actually prefer to keep it because I think it's more accurate. I think it actually more accurately describes me than even the Roman Catholic Church. I believe I am more Catholic than the Catholics. Now, if we were still in St. James, this would be our last Sunday there. Uh, <laughs> But we're not, so let me explain. For Roman Catholics, Catholicity means the worldwide church that is under the headship of the Pope, who are in communion with each other, who are under the teaching authority of the magisterium of the church. Whereas my Catholicity is the worldwide fellowship of believers who are under the headship of Christ, who are in communion with all Christians everywhere, who are under the teaching authority of the Scriptures. See, my Catholicity embraces Roman Catholics who trust in Christ alone for salvation. But their Catholicity does not necessarily embrace me. Therefore, the word more accurately applies to me. We shouldn't give that word away. It belongs to us. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now, what is fascinating about this is this means that the church, listen, the church is one of the most inclusive communities in the history of the world. Now, no, that's not the word you usually associate with the church, is it? 
Usually it's the opposite word. It's exclusive. Because we do believe that Christ alone is the way of salvation, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him, that there is no name under heaven by which we must be saved. And in that sense, yes, it is an exclusive community. But friends, also, it is incredibly inclusive. The Catholic means that it is for everyone. Everyone. Ben Myers has a book on the creed I've been reading through this series. Listen to what he says. He says, in the waters of baptism, all the old social divisions are made irrelevant. The church includes every kind of person, rich and poor, male and female, Jews and Gentiles, slave and free. Whatever defined a person before is relativized by the new defining mark of membership in the company of Jesus' followers. Myers goes on to say that the Christian faith is the most translatable religion in the entire world. The message has been translated into every language, into every culture, into every age. It speaks to every human being because it addresses our universal need. It speaks to our whole human condition. And that means in every age, to every person, in every situation, the gospel speaks with truth and with grace. Friends, it even translates across one of the, one of the greatest barriers that divides human beings. Not just culture or language or class, but even death. Even death. Listen, here, here's Myers again. The greatest barrier is death. It splits the human family into two classes of the living and the dead. All human beings are powerless before this fundamental boundary. But in the resurrection, Jesus has stepped across the barrier. He has formed one family that stretches not only across space, but also across time. The body is the most inclusive community imaginable because it includes not only those who are now living, but also all believers who have ever lived. That's what our reading from Hebrews 12 is picking up on. Who are these great cloud of witnesses that surround us as we run the race of faith? It was all those saints mentioned in the previous chapter, chapter 11, who are now dead. People who lived and died by faith from Abel to Abraham to Rahab to the nameless saints who suffered in the hope of a better promise. Hebrews imagines even that when we come together for worship on earth, we are mysteriously worshiping alongside the saints and the angels in heaven. Did you hear that? Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Or in the words of our liturgy, we say every week leading to communion. Maybe you pass over it. Listen to what it says. Therefore, with angels and with archangels, with all the company of heaven, we praise and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising, praising you and singing the song that they sing day and night before your throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Friends, to believe in the church means to believe that you are a part of something so much bigger than yourself. So much bigger than the people in this room. The scale of which you cannot imagine until, until the end. When all nations, tribes, peoples, and languages, the saints of all time and space, will be gathered together around God's throne. Listen, if a church preaches the true gospel, if it practices the sacraments, if it protects the flock through shepherding and discipline, then they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
We are one. We are Catholic. Oh, how we need to recover this. This beautiful Catholicity of the church in our bitterly divided age. What a beautiful thing. Lastly, what do we, what do we believe about the church? We believe that there is vital communion there. We believe there is vital communion. It says we believe in the communion of saints. In that one word is the heart of the purpose of the church. We have vital communion with God and with each other. And that's how it must be. It must be with God and with each other. Without God, it's just a club. 1 John 1.3 says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what we have, communion, fellowship with God and with each other. And that's why we read the whole chapter of 12, Hebrews chapter 12. Because throughout, it uses the athletic imagery to try to convince us that you cannot survive without the communion of saints. It is vital. The author says the Christian life is like running a race, a long endurance race. And the saints, as we said, are like the crowds in the amphitheater who are cheering you on as you run the race. But those saints, they're not just observers. They're not like me at the CrossFit Games, watching people do things I could never do while while I eat ice cream. That's how I like to do it. But that's not the case. In this case, they're former competitors themselves who've already run the race, finished. So they know how, exactly how hard it is. They know what it's like to doubt, to suffer, to struggle, to endure to the very end and conclude that it was all worth it. Most of all, what these saints are trying to tell you is to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer, the trailblazer, the pace setter, who has already run the race of faith before you. The author says he endured the cross with all its shame. He endured such hostility from a sinful world, and he has reached the prize at the right hand of God. He says, look at him. Look at him, so you don't grow weary or faint-hearted. The church is vital to help us run the race of faith to the end. The church helps us lay aside every weight. This is the sin which clings so closely. Otherwise, it's like trying to run the race with the ankle weight still on or with the training vest still on. The communion of the church helps us shed that dead weight. It also helps us to see that underneath all the suffering of our life is the fatherly hand of God who disciplines us for our own good. To see that our father disciplines us because he loves us so that we're not illegitimate children but true sons and daughters. I don't know how this, if this has happened for you in the church. It has for me. Or I'm going through something and I'm suffering and I don't understand it. And the church comes along and gives me, see, gives me vision to see that God is treating me like a son. Not like an orphan, not like a slave, like a son. Where the church comes around and helps me remember that I have a father. And he loves me so much. The church is vital to help you finish the race. Because the prize is absolutely worth it. In the words of verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That's our mission as a church. That no one fails to obtain the grace of God. To help us not be like Esau, 
who traded something priceless for a momentary pleasure. Right? He gave up his birthright for a single meal. He traded his whole inheritance for a cup of stew. And that's the analogy for giving up the race of faith. Whatever you drop out for, it's like a cup of stew compared to the internal inheritance and blessing beyond your wildest dream that is yours in Christ. The communion of saints, friends, helps us to fight the good fight, to finish the race, to keep the faith, to receive at the end a crown of glory that never fades, that is worth whatever sacrifice is necessary to reach it. Yesterday, my eight-year-old daughter, Nora, complete, is she in here? Hi, Nora. She completed her first season of Girls on the Run program at her elementary school by completing her first ever 5K race. So impressive, all right? Eight years old. Yeah, you can cop to that. I completed mine when I was 38, so that's really, that's really great. But her favorite part, uh, I was asking her about it, her favorite part was when she was coming to the finish line. If you've never run a race like this, this blows your mind. All these people lining the streets on both sides, cheering you on. And you could see, like you could see the encouragement <laughs> that it gave her as she sprinted to the finish to receive her prize, a medal around her neck and a feast of snacks. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's the church at its best. This is the purpose for which we were created, to, to be the vital communion necessary to help you run the race of faith to the very end, to receive the crown upon your head and to feast with all the saints in glory. So here you are. You are here on this All Saints Sunday. I don't know what obstacles you had to overcome to be in a church this morning, but I know you have them. I don't know what scars you carry from the church, but I know you also have those. And if you have seriously thought about walking away from it all, maybe not Jesus, but at least the church, especially in light of our recent challenges, I don't blame you. I understand. So what is it that keeps you here? What is it that keeps me here? Is it not the hope that we have for all of our own lives, which is that God is not done? God is not done with her. The Holy Spirit is present and at work. We have to see the church like we see ourselves as a work in progress, not as she is, but as she will one day be. A radiant bride without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish. Well, we're here because Jesus loves the church and he asks us to love what he loves. To believe that she is holy and is becoming holy. That she is Catholic and she is becoming more Catholic. That she contains vital communion within despite her many flaws. Therefore, we endure. In the words of Flannery O'Connor, the only thing, I love this, the only thing that makes the church endurable is that it is somehow the body of Christ and that on this we are fed. Yes, you have to suffer as much from the church as for it. You have to cherish her while you struggle to endure at the same time, but somehow she is the body of Christ, and on this we are fed. Amen. Let me pray. Let's ask God to help us. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are grateful for the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. But most of all, we are thankful for Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. 
Lord, help us, please, to fix our eyes on him. That we may run the race of faith and not grow weary. That we may walk and not grow faint. Let us fix our eyes on him that we may obtain the promised inheritance that is in front of us and not throw our inheritance away for nothing. Lord, help your holy Catholic Church on every shore, on every continent, wherever she gathers today. Help her and make her more and more into the radiant bride. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.